Hello and welcome to the Novel Analyst Podcast. My name is Jed Hearn, author of the fantasy books Across the Broken Stars and Fires of the Dead, and today I am joined by S. Andrew Swan. S. Andrew Swan is the pen name of Stephen Swinasi. He has published over 26 novels since 1993, which is insanely impressive, um, and his recent works include Sword of the Slayer, an interactive fiction story from Choice of Games, which I just read slash played recently, and I loved it so much to reach out to Stephen who has decided to come on the show. So thank you for being here, Stephen. Oh, you're welcome. Glad to be here. So Sword of the Slayer really, really interests me because I'm a huge fantasy reader um, and I've just gotten into playing a couple of different choice of games, which are these interactive choose your own adventure stories with a great level of depth to them. And I've probably played about eight or so of them over the last few months. And I'm not just saying this because you're here, but Sword of the Slayer is my absolute favorite one. So I was wondering if you could talk me through some of your inspirations for that and how you approach choice of games to work on that particular story. Uh, well, that story is sort of like a distillation of uh, uh, a lot of different fantasy tropes that I decided to sort of like meld together uh, somewhat spiritually based on uh, uh, a short story I wrote uh, a while ago. Uh, it was in the Marty Greenberg anthology called Man and Machine. It's called The Historian's Apprentice. Uh, it's not quite the same animal because uh, The Historian's Apprentice was uh, uh, a bit of a stylistic experiment as well as sort of a homage to uh, Gene Wolfe. But uh, the setting, uh, the sort of uh, claustrophobic and confined city is sort of reminiscent of the, the kind of uh, backstory and history I was working with with the historian's apprentice and that's where the, most of that came from. And uh, 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 the monster hunting element actually sort of came from a completely different direction. It's like, I'm sort of like partially inspired by Larry Korea's uh, Monster Hunter series, <laughs> which is uh, uh, sort of gun heavy uh, uh, urban fantasy. And uh, it it's a lot of fun. So it's like, I sort of like pick pieces of that, you know, for for part of the setting just to have a, basically, so it has a plot. <laughs> and uh, uh, the sword is my own thing. Uh, and, you know, I sort of wanted a, the, the magical artifact to be a character in the story. So I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I definitely found um, the setting very immersive. And it, it's always a fascinating thing for me when it comes to fantasy stories as to finding out for authors whether it was the plot that came first or the characters or the setting. Um, with this game, which one of those three elements was the, I suppose, initial burst of inspiration for you? Um, I think, the, I think the, the sword was the initial. That, that's, uh, the interesting thing about writing uh, the choice of games is... Um, you're sort of coming at it from outside the character because uh, basically the philosophy of the, the, the choice of games is they want the, the protagonist to be 
sort of as flexible as you know the various different players so you can't hinge a lot um well that's not quite true you can hinge things on the player's character but it's character as revealed by the care by the the player's actions so the protagonist is sort of mutable it's mm. like you can end up with you know this you know you know real uh you know nasty evil protagonist or this you know upstanding upright protagonist depending on what the player does during the game so uh you really can't necessarily base the plot per se at least the core plot on the protagonist's character it has to sort of come from the outside in order for the work and then sort of like dovetail that with what the player does so you know it's a complicated beast <laughs> yeah uh, where i started i i started with the sword the, the idea of the sword and you know basically starting the game with uh this sort of every man protagonist every woman protagonist coming across this uh you know, enchanted sword in this sort of decadent uh, fantasy setting and, uh, you know, sort of becoming, then this is a trope I've done, done. it's like the, there's a trope in fantasy, it's like the chosen one, it's like, you know, the, the protagonist becoming the linchpin of like, you know, major epic things and uh, often that's an accident by, by birth in a lot of lot of fantasy stories and I, my always my chosen ones tend to be uh not born to it and generally not necessarily particularly adept at it <laughs> <laughs> so i you know i like uh the idea of the protagonist that could have been anyone and just happens to be this person through some you know accident of fate that thr thrusts them into the situation rather than having it be something you know inherent yeah and you certainly get that sense with um yeah the protagonist is sort of the slayer as well but you picked up on a really interesting thing there because to me sort of the slayer kind of reminds me a little bit of the name of the wind in the sense of it sort of recontextualizes a lot of these classic fantasy tropes in a way that feels fresh and unique and in name of the wind i think that's because of the the prose that rothfuss writes in it's it's very like immersive and you know some would say purple but i find it really engaging and with sword of the slayer it's getting those tropes recontextualized because you are the character and you're interacting with the story now rather than just being a passive observer of it so i'm very i'm very happy to hear that that was sort of a intention of yours to sort of meld all these different fantasy tropes in together. Were there any tropes that you wanted to kind of include that you couldn't because of time restrictions or the medium restrictions? Um, well, it's not that I like necessarily started out with a pile of tropes that I wanted to use. Okay. Uh, I, uh, I worked through this and basically grabbed stuff as I needed and and fit them into the story as as necessary so I you know I didn't come away feeling that I had missed something um, mm. uh, although you know it's like 
I could have I could have done you know maybe some more of uh you know the sort of nasty side effects of the sword if you were <laughs> it's like that that was sort of confined mostly uh those side effects to the end you know there was some foreshadowing involved in, in some some of these choices but I, I i if i had more space and more time i could have probably done that a, a little deeper and had a, a little more time with that than necessarily the various endings i certainly found it um worrying whenever i because i'm one of those choice of games players who likes to constantly check the stats and see sort of how the relationships all the characters are going and how my different you know attributes are and everything and i was certainly very worried when i saw a stat there that was like thrall to the sword and i got really afraid about following it <laughs> <from> that <point. laughs> yeah that definitely counts as foreshadowing it's yeah. <laughs> that was cool but um yeah i found it um very engaging and i was wondering if there's any lessons that you've learned because this is the this is the second choice of games um story that you've written after welcome to Morrytown. is that correct yeah that's uh, i've done two of them great so what are some of the lessons that you learned from that first experience or perhaps mistakes you made from the first experience that you learned from for sort of the slayer um i think uh i think keeping control of how things are branching uh was was a good lesson it's like uh there was uh in welcome to Morrytown, there was a real pro pro proliferation of endings uh that was really sort of difficult to deal with it became this sort of gordian knot of uh code in the back end i mean it's like uh yeah it's great for the player you had like all these you know different things that could happen but it's like you know in terms of writing the thing it was a little bit of a nightmare um in the in sort of the slayer i actually tried to keep things a little more modular <laughs> so so that you know the various pieces could work independently of each other <laughs> so so i didn't have one event that like changed like five different things at once <laughs> Yeah, okay, that's a pretty useful lesson. And and you do get that sense because it's sort of divided into different chapters. And yeah, it would seem like you could quite easily have, you know, a lot of these different options in like one chapter, but then it sort of comes back to the same climax, but maybe from like a different angle or from a different interpretation. So I think that worked out really well. Um, so you've had a, a really like quite long and extensive publishing career, um, which inspires me a lot because I hope this doesn't make you feel old, but your first book was published um, five years before I was born. So this is, <laughs> this is quite, quite impressive. Um, what have you learned over that? What are some of the lessons, I suppose, that you've learned over publishing? Um, is, it, is it 26 novels or so? Yeah, well, one thing is, uh, you know, that you never stop learning about stuff it's like you're never done <laughs> um it it's uh i mean the choice of games is a great example it's like uh i dove into that and it's like uh and i had already been writing for 20 years prose and it's like you know a completely different 
uh, uh, way of writing and different narrative style. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's as different from writing prose as, you know, like script writing is from poetry. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm lucky in that, you know, my, uh, my day job, I'm, I'm a database manager, I'm familiar with code, so it's like I happen to have actually the, the two core skill sets you need to do this sort of thing. And even so, it was, you know, it was a learning experience getting the interactive fiction part of it to, to work. So, it, you know, it, it's like plotting one of those things is very difficult. It's like you plot off in one direction, you write a little bit, then you have to back up and say, okay, now you do this and this happens. And then you back up again and it's like you do this and then this happens. And it's, you know, you know, it's very complicated. And it's like, uh, you know, if you're not careful, it can really spill out of control on you. Yes, definitely. And I think um, one of the interesting things I've, I've sort of picked up from my research into yeah, various choice of game writers and everything is you have to make an outline for choice of games before they sort of decide for you to um, start writing a game and everything. How much detail do you then put into your own planning beyond that point? Or are you more of a sort of organic writer who prefers to just let the story unfold and then maybe like pull it back to where it needs to be? Well, in terms of outlining, um, the outlining I did for Choice of Games really ends up being the master outline for, for, the, for the game. And within that uh, framework, I'm generally writing within, you know, sort of like pantsing it within these various chapter beats I have. Um, and I've been, uh, in my writing career, I've done both. I've I've uh, I've written novels completely from the seat of my pants, you know, uh, you know, starting out at page one, writing through to the end, no outline, no nothing, no net. Um, and I've also I've written very detailed outlines of books, and it, it's like the ones I outline are not necessarily the ones that you'd suspect I outline. Like my uh, my hostile takeover and apotheosis uh, uh, trilogies uh, are both like you know massive space opera, cast of thousands. It's like you know different things happening on different planets at different times. Didn't outline those at all. <laughs> it's like I, that was complete wow. seat of my pants. Um, I, you know, the only outlining I did was sort of retroactively just keeping track of plot beats so that if I threw a plot thread up in the air, I caught it before the book ended. Um, the most detailed outline I ever wrote was for Dragon Princess, which is about a uh, 75,000 word uh, humorous fantasy. <laughs> and uh, I think I did the outline for that uh, so detailed because um, that was my first sort of like headlong dive into, you know, unrepentant humor, which I'd never done before. And I outlined most of my jokes. <laughs> <laughs> that stresses me out so much that, that you wouldn't outline like a massive space opera thing. <laughs> that would do my head. I'm like a very big outliner, so it, it, it just it just makes me worried when people are like, oh yes, I've got thousands of characters and 
I'll just keep it all up in my head, but obviously it works out. Do you think that's because you just have like a lot of experience with the genre? So maybe if you're not, you're not, you might not be consciously outlining, but you sort of like have all of the plot structure and all of those sort of basic foundational things ingrained into you? Uh, well, I mean, there's probably a bit of that going on. And I also think it's just, um, the thing about plotting is not so much, uh, you know, coming up with the incident. Uh, the plotting is when you resolve the incident. So it's like, uh, you know, throwing the, throwing, you know, balls in the air is easy. It's just, you need to keep track of them <laughs> yeah. as you can, so that you can, can catch them before the end. They're all, somebody's going to be wondering, it's like, uh, what happened to that character on, on, on page 50 that, that left screen and never came back? <laughs> so I've, I've been good at keeping tabs on, you know, you know, the, 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 the plot threads I've been throwing out. I mean, that's, that, that's basically the gist of it. It's like, I, you know, it's like, I need something to happen. I make something happen. And by the time I get, you know, midway to two thirds of the way through, it's like, I don't need to come up with anything more. I just need to resolve the stuff I already came up with in the first, you know, three, uh, you know, you know, 23 chapters or so. So uh, I think it's gauging where that tipping point is, where you focus, you know, less on new problems and more on resolving the old ones. It's like knowing where that point is, is like the key to successfully pantsing a novel. <laughs> That's a really interesting way of thinking about it. And I've never considered that before. Yeah. Like the, yeah, where do you find that point where you sort of the trajectories of all the, all the balls you've thrown in the air start to arc downwards and how do you catch them all at once? And I suppose it's almost like a matter of maybe you launch them at different points, but for me, like the really successful climaxes are where you sort of catch them like all in one go and they all just weave together into that one movement, I suppose. Um, yeah, and in fact, I think that, I've mentioned this on online before, but this is a, the difference between a, a tightly plotted novel and a well-plotted novel. Uh, um, a well-plotted novel, is it's like there's nothing extraneous going on it's like everything that's brought up is resolved everything contributes to the events leading to conclusion but they're not necessarily simultaneous they can be episodic they can be you know you know in sequence i mean a good example of what i think is a well plotted novel it would be uh uh american gods by neil gaiman yes it's like there's a lot of tangents in there, a, a lot of them, but they all contribute to the overall whole. And, you know, they're episodic. It's like, you know, there's a plot thread that could start in the middle and then end like in the middle. And, but it's like, you know, it all fits together and it, it's, it's a really nice experience to read. A tightly plotted novel, which, uh, I've been told that my uh, space operas are, <laughs> uh, even though they've been pantsed, um, is ha happens when they, when what you said happens is when, you know, a lot of the plot threads are basically brought together into a single conclusion. Uh, 
Um, so that in addition to everything being necessary and everything, you know, having a re resolution, there's sort of like an ultimate resolution to everything, more or less at once. Um, That's a really good definition. Yeah, and I love American Gods too. It's, and I definitely get what you're saying because you, on first impression, it's a very rambling novel that just sort of goes to all these different places and you, you know, maybe like goes to a chapter with a character you've never heard before and then does almost like a short story with that character and then it's back to the main plot. But it does all feed into the same kind of unified tone and theme and everything. So that is a really good example. What are some other books that you particularly like look up to or think are just great examples of, of writing in general? Oh, well, of course you ask that question. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, in terms of just sheer fun, um, you know, I, I love uh, uh, Jim Butcher's uh, Dresden series. I mean, that's just like, you know, uh, that's like fun stuff. I mean, if you want, uh, um, you know, it's like deep, sort of deep dive into space opera, uh with sort of heavy heavy themes um i would uh you know suggest like uh peter f hamilton or uh even uh like dan Sim simmons uh, hyperion um those are good uh let's see um and uh you know completely a field it's like uh you know my uh favorite horror novel uh uh maybe uh the fireman by uh, joe hill which is a book i probably would not recommend you read in this current situation unless you want to freak yourself out okay <laughs> <laughs> it tells me everything i need to know about it <laughs> So there, there's a couple. I mean, there's like dozens of people. I mean, uh, you know, in terms of influences, it's like my my influences, you know, range from, uh, you know, Stephen King to Larry Niven to Heinlein. So that is a pretty eclectic range of yeah sources to draw upon. And and your own writing is quite eclectic as well because you have like fantasy and science fiction. And do you have horror as well? Yeah, I've done yes. horror. Mostly it's been under uh, other names. It's like I've uh, written two vampire novels under my given name, uh, S.A. Swinyarski. Um, and uh, I've uh, written uh, a pair of werewolf books, uh, historical novels uh, set in the Middle Ages, uh, A Wolf Breed and Wolf's Cross that was under S.A. Swan which may or may not come up under a S. Andrew Swan search, you know, sort of depends. Um, so, so yeah, I've been all over the map. And do you find that that has, oh, sorry, keep, keep going. Oh, and uh, it's like in a completely different tone is my uh, latest novel for Daw Marked, uh, which is, uh, it's it's sort of urban fantasy, steampunky, zombie-ish 
uh, novel that's really an homage to uh, Zelazny's Amber series. Mm. So again, those eclectic influences just all sort of like mashing up in there. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> so do you find it difficult to jump between genres or do you find that you need to do that because you're not satisfied with just like working in one genre and you sort of like need a break with each book to work on something new? It's not a conscious decision. It's like, okay. uh, I, I probably jump genres way more than is healthy for my career. <laughs> um, it's like, I, I instead of developing a, a, a fan base, I've developed several different fan bases. Uh, well, but, uh, you know, it's like, that's what not what I was thinking about when I was deciding what to write. Um, so it's like I write wrote stuff as it came to me, um, and it's like it's only this late in my career I've been thinking about okay, uh, what should I do to like you know develop my career in this direction? I still haven't gotten to that point <laughs> because I got like sidetracked by a by uh, uh, offer to write something that I couldn't actually uh, see myself refusing, so. Fair enough. So. <laughs> um, and how have you managed to balance, because it, it's quite remarkable to me when someone has published almost a book a year for a quarter of a century by itself, like that's impressive, but it's, it's almost more impressive that you've done that while balancing, it seems to me like day jobs as well. How have you been able to stay sort of productive with that balance? And what are your productivity tips for writers? Well, just, uh, you know, in my case, it's, it's just do it regularly. I mean, uh, uh, for the past 10 years or so, it's like my, my production has basically been in the morning before I uh, do the day job. So, um, you know, I, I leave home early, get to the office around seven, right, right until uh, eight and the phone starts ringing and, uh, um, and do that every day. Um, I'm, and that's actually one of the perks of the current situation is the fact that I'm uh, telecommuting now. So I've gotten essentially an extra 15, 20 minutes to write in the morning because I'm not doing the commute. There's definitely an upside well, to it. I've actually been more productive. <laughs> nice. Okay. So you haven't found that the, the current issues with, yeah, all the coronavirus and stuff, you've still managed to like find a way to still keep being productive during that? Because I think that is something that like some writers struggle with during this time. Uh, well, like I said, I, I've actually been more productive during this. I mean, uh, I, you know, when I'm in the middle of a project, I tend to get uh, uh, really focused on it. And so external stressors don't affect me all that much. I may be unique in that regard. Uh, it's like, I mean, other people may have to deal with, uh, you know, their responses to the situation in order to, in order to write. I've, I've just been fortunate that, you know, probably, uh, you know, a bit of ADHD or uh, something that like focusing on something is, something I do well, uh, sometimes too well, but. Fair enough. 
So talking more generally about your writing career, what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned over the different books you've published? And have there been any, I suppose, lessons that were particularly surprising to you that, you know, maybe you didn't understand until, you know, novel 10 or novel 20? Uh, well, that, that one about, you know, you never stop, stop learning how to do this thing is a really important one, uh, especially when you realize that it's not just the writing part of it that that applies to. Um, I'm, uh, I'm discovering, uh, you know, basically how to navigate the, the current landscape and I still have, haven't like figured out the publishing landscape yet. I mean, uh, I'm still working my way in into it, even at you know, having you know 26 novels under my belt. It's like still, uh, you know, publishing an indie novel is you know stressful and not necessarily an automatic success. But you know, a large part of the industry is drifting that direction, so I can't really ignore it. And uh, you know, I think uh, being willing to adapt yourself as the situation around you changes is uh, is an important thing. Um, I'm trying to practice what I'm preaching there, but it's like, you know, it's, you know, I'm in my fifties and it's like, it's hard to get some of these ingrained ideas out of my head. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, you know, about five years ago, I realized, you know, if I'm at a con and somebody asks me how to get published nowadays, it's like, I don't know what to tell them. <laughs> it's like, I, I could tell you how to get published in 1992. <laughs> <laughs> Just hop in that time travel machine, but go back like, and use the advice. It, it's like, uh, you know, I, when, when I'm dealing with my peers now, um, it's like anybody that's, you know, you know, in their writing and that they're in their, in their 30s, it's like, their experience getting into print is completely different than mine. Uh, it's, it's almost as much of a difference nowadays between the way I uh, became a, a writer and the way people are now coming, becoming writers as it was between the people who grew up writing for the pulps in the 30s and the 40s versus the people wrote for mass market paperbacks, you know, in the 60s and 70s. I mean, it's that much of a difference yeah. in, the, in the industry. It is a huge change. And I, yeah, I'm very curious to hear about your thoughts on indie publishing, because my understanding is that you're sort of going into that. I'm a very like early stage indie published author myself. So it is quite like interesting to me to see someone who's had, yeah, such a, a long career with you and you have such a massive backlist of books. Um, how are you going about tackling indie publishing? And could you just talk through a little bit of that decision in some more detail? Uh, well, it's, you know, I'm still in the, the sort of learning phase of it. So I have, you know, as sort of a proof of concept, brought one of my out of print books back to life on Amazon uh, and uh, have that listed. And I got, a couple of uh, others uh, that have that have uh, 
uh, reverted the, one of the rights and reverted that I'm in the pipeline to do that. But uh, this, the project I mentioned that I couldn't refuse, it's like that's taken up most of my time. <laughs> and it's like I, uh, everything I've, I have as far as the writing uh, goes is, is being devoted to that, which I unfortunately can't really talk about. <laughs> it's, it's one of those where I have to wait until uh, the publicity department decides to make an announcement. <laughs> and uh, Sounds exciting, though. Uh, it is. I mean, uh, I mean, I can talk about it in broad strokes. I mean, I, I had to go to uh, Los Angeles to meet with uh, um, the, the director involved in it. And uh, I was, I was sort of uh, blown away at it, like how on the same page we actually were on, 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 on the nature of this project. I mean, that, you know, uh, held true basically through all our communications. It's like, you know, we seem to be on the same wavelength here, which is, uh, which I guess is why, uh, uh, you know, he chose me. It's like he, he saw something in my writing that, you know, clicked with him and I seem to be clicking with him. So uh, fingers crossed, this should be uh, probably within the year being announced. So, cool. you know, and it's a semi big deal. So <laughs> fantastic. Well, I look forward to, yeah, hopefully hearing updates on that towards the, uh, the end of 2020 as we are all emerging from our caves back into the world <laughs> yeah i'm just hoping that this uh this situation hasn't like you know uh caused any upheavals in that project because it's like uh you know hollywood's one of those industries that is really feeling the, the heat from everybody being locked down it's like yeah you know the movies aren't being released and it's like that's like that's a lot of money <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of a crazily big industry that, yeah, a lot of people don't even sort of appreciate that it almost is an industry in a way. But I suppose when you are a writer, you are very keyed into to everything involved yeah. with that. <laughs> um, what would you say are your biggest writing strengths and your biggest writing weaknesses? Uh, I think my strengths are probably, uh, you know, plotting and, you know, action sequences. Uh, I've been I've been told that and, uh, you know, I, I do seem to have uh, a good ability of, you know, visualizing what's happening in a scene and staging it so that it gets across to the reader without uh, confusing them. I think probably my weakest point, and again, people have, have told me that is it's like, you know, it's like I, I tend to have uh, struggles with uh, characterization, not necessarily uh, having, you know, characters with, act without motive, but probably more uh, coming up with characters that, you know, people have a, a deeper connection to. It's like, you know, a lot of times I come up with characters that, you know, you know, people like, they have a, you know, you know, they enjoy the surface, but they're not like really, you know, horribly emotionally invested in them so um you know i work on that a lot and uh but you know 
I I do tend to write these action pot boilers, which tend to sort of gloss over the, the that part of the you know the literary spectrum. So it may be just a side effect of what I've been writing. Fair enough. How did, how did, did you how did you manage character arcs in something like Sword of the Slayer, which is interactive? So it doesn't really give you as the author like a huge amount of control necessarily over how, yeah, like a character that is not the, the protagonist, um, you know, experiences their arc and their transformation throughout the story. How did you go through that process? Uh, well, it's, it's really the arcs are more or less driven by the, the various choices. So it's like, uh, when you're, uh, it, it's like the plot, really. As a matter of fact, it, it you know probably counts as a, a portion of the plot. So sort of like so, when the character in the choice of games uh, makes a choice, uh, they're informing the action of the subsequent scene, but they're also having an effect on their character arc because they've you know expressed their character through the making of this decision so uh the character the protagonist personality is going to be you know necessarily ex exhibited differently subsequent to that in addition the characters around them the the population of the rest of the story all have some rippling effect from that choice now it may not be you know that granular, but just in general, the choices the character is making is influencing the reactions of the characters around them. So it's it's not just one character arc, it's like multiple arcs so that, you know, the character, the protagonist may end up in a different place, but so will, you know, the various characters around them. Um, So it's sort of this thing where you've woven the, the character arc into the plot and then the plot is sort of defined by the the player's choices and everything. So it creates this sense of, of yeah, the characters responding to how you do. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, one of the definitions of, uh, of plot is simply the, 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 the sequence of cause and effect in a story. So, you know, something happens, something happens because that happened, something happens because this happened. Um, and that chain of events is what the, the plot actually is. And when you look at it, uh, uh, the, the, the characters' choices, not just in choice of games, but in any piece of fiction, uh, are one of the main drivers of the plot. So, you know, in a way, the, the, the person's character is not, a separate entity from the plot. It's like uh, the, the motivations of the protagonists are going to be, you know, one of the things that drives the plot. The motivations of the antagonist are going to be dividing, uh, you know, driving the plot. And those are both driven by the character of these individuals. So, you know, you can't really get away from having, you know, characterization in the, in the, in a novel um and that's why you know it's like if you don't have that characterization you have you know basically 
cardboard characters. It's like cutouts that are just sort of like doing things because the plot requires it of them. Yeah, you definitely don't want that. And I think that's one of the, the great strengths of the choice of games medium and just interactive fiction in general is it really puts the emphasis on choice. And I think for writing linear fiction that is not interactive, that's still a really useful thing to be considering is like, how can you be giving characters difficult choices to reveal who they are under pressure and yeah, to make the story have that conflict and that excitingness to it. Um, what are your world building tips and lessons for, you know, building interesting science fiction and fantasy worlds? Uh, well, one of the more important things I, I, I think is like, uh, in uh, world building is keep notes on what you're doing and remain consistent with the implications of what you're what you're doing so that's going to apply whether you outline it whether you pants it it's like if you bring something up think through the implications of that thing and you know make sure you uh resolve it because it's that that can often be another form of dangling plot thread. It's like, uh, you know, um, you know, one, uh, one glaring example of that is, and, you know, it's sort of, it's sort of grandfathered into the whole, whole franchise, but it's still a little irksome that Star Trek has not ever really examine the implications of the transporter what that technology could actually do <laughs> and people have just sort of like you know it, you know uh i don't know if it's an apocryphal story or not but i i believe that the reason transporter exists in the star trek universe in the first place is because the the original series did not have the budget to show people landing on a planet. <laughs> <laughs> that would make so, some sense, actually. <laughs> so they came up with the transporter, uh, but yeah, it's like uh, you know, it's like from you know, okay, you can't transport through somebody's shields, but why can't you transport a whole bunch of photon torpedoes right <laughs> next to the Klingon ship? <laughs> It'd be a very effective weapon if they actually used it to the fullest extent. Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then they bring up other things like, you know, bringing back people that have been, uh, you know, frozen in this transporter matrix, sometimes creating duplicates. And it's like, this raises all sorts of existential <laughs> questions that never actually get addressed. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's canon that there are two Rikers running around. It's like, are you saying this is the only time this has happened? It's like, this is, you know, it's like, there's just all sorts of weird things that, that are implied by that technology. But uh, I always find it very interesting when, yeah, someone looks at all the, the loopholes that exist in, Kind of like a fictional world and yeah looks at all the ways that someone who actually sat down to think about it for a bit could uh exploit all of those things there's a really good um uh like fan fiction story of harry potter called harry potter and the methods of rationality and it's basically this it's basically like you know let's exploit the fact that uh 
that the owls in the world can magically find anyone that you address a letter to, even if you don't know where they are. Why wouldn't we just attach like a hand grenade to an owl and mail it to Voldemort, for instance? And all of those <laughs> loopholes are so satisfying to see people work through. <laughs> what is the yeah, best so, writing advice? Oh, sorry, keep going. Yeah. Uh, well, like I said, it's like, what you need to do is like, you know, when you're building your story is like, go after it like one of these people goes after like, you know, Harry Potter or Star yeah. Trek. It, it's like, you know, make sure that you, you know, leave as little of the loopholes in there as possible. And sometimes those loopholes are actually some of the most interesting parts of your story when you realize that like, hey, this magic system, if you combined it with this magic system or this piece of technology, it could lead to this sort of unexpected outcome and you could have a very interesting solution to problems that the characters are facing because of that. So I think that is definitely yeah, and, a really good tip. Yeah, and that, that in fact is, can be like a really satisfying experience for the reader. It's like if you, if you deliberately leave this unexplained loophole in your system and then you later on have a character actually exploit it to get out of a problem, it's like the, re the reader who actually was, you know, you know, thought, you know, thought you'd left this thing hanging is actually now pulled into the story because ah, I saw that. <laughs> yeah, it's so satisfying when that happens. And yeah, it's like one of the coolest experiences to have that, that sort of cognitive dissonance from these yeah, issues with the world actually be something that has a strong sense of purpose to it. That's really good. Yeah. What is the best writing advice you have ever received? Uh, it takes persistence. <laughs> that's, that's basically it. I mean, it, it takes persistence to like write a novel. It takes a persistence to, you know, market a novel. It's like to get it into print, you know, be it traditionally or, uh, you know, indie. It's like, you know, all requires you to just keep going at it. So. Fair enough. It's pretty inspiring to yeah hear that and to yeah see that you, you're continuing to going strong after so many novels published and such a like long career and that you're still trying new things you know the choice of game stuff the the indie publishing thing and and yeah whatever other project that you are working on in top secret right now that's yeah. very great um, yeah that is a, that that in and of itself is a completely new experience for me and uh, yeah I'm actually uh enjoying myself so i'm hoping that Great. you know this this actually leads to more things so i know you can't talk too much about the experience but have there been any interesting lessons or insights into writing that you've sort of taken from it so far uh i guess the, the interesting thing is it's like um when you're when you're playing with somebody else's universe it's like you, you need you need a couple of two things. One is you need you need to respect that universe. I mean, you need to sort of understand deep down what the creators were trying to do, and be as true as you can to that vision. And also that writing it is a lot like writing a historical novel in that in a historical novel you have 
this whole list of events and things that happened that you can't change. It's like it happened. So it's like, you know, if you're writing an accurate historical novel, it's like, you know, these things happened in this order with these people involved. So you can't, you, you need to basically write in sort of like the interstitial spaces. It's like, that's where you have your creativity. Um, you know, writing in the places we can't see. Um, so in terms of, uh, you know, adapting somebody else's work, um, uh, say, you know, from, you know, a visual medium, it's like one of those, one of those interstitial spaces is the, you know, inner lives of the characters and sort of the, the sensory, the, aside from sight and sound, the, the sensory experiences of the characters um, is where you get to like, you know, express your creativity in that venue. It, it's, uh, um, it's an interesting experience. That's awesome. I think this is a really good uh, place to wrap it up. That sounds like you are working on some super interesting projects at the moment and I hope to yeah, stay updated with those in the future. Um, yeah. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention or anything of that nature before we wrap this up? Uh, well, it's like, uh, as far as uh, my books go, it's like most of them are on Amazon. Um, you know, one thing about writing for dog books is they keep most most of the stuff in print so it's 90 percent of what i've written you can find on amazon um you know just look for s andrew swan uh the latest thing marked my my sort of lasney homage just came out in uh, mass market paperback uh this past january so um and uh you know, you can find me on Facebook as S. Andrew Swan. And uh, I'm on Twitter as S. Andrew Swan, although I don't tweet much. Um, you posted some really good uh, memes about covers of those old Amazing Stories magazines. <laughs> they were fantastic. I was looking at those before he started talking and got a lot of enjoyment out of those. Yeah, I had, I had fun making those. I should make some more of those. Yeah, please do. <laughs> All right. Well, Stephen, this has been really great. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. And yeah, once again, thank I will you put, for having me. You're welcome. I'll put links to everything that we've talked about in the show notes. So uh, listeners slash viewers, if you want to check out some of the things we have been discussing, have a look at those. Um, so yeah, Stephen, thanks again. I hope you stay safe and I hope your projects keep being great. Oh, thank you. And good luck with the podcast. Thank you.